I'm not sure how many of you know Jake Bongiovanni and Lynn Shoemaker. You might not know them very well, though they have been coming to Grace for a while. They're not as rowdy as some of you, so that's why you might not know them. They're both teachers. Jake teaches math at Selenko, and Lynn is a special education teacher in the Garden Spot uh, School District. And about a few weeks ago, they got engaged. So congratulations to you. Uh, Next... Next July, next July. Ah, also, another cause for celebration, Jimmy Stewart and Monica Natividad are also engaged. So our congratulations to them. They got engaged last Monday. So Now, take your Bibles and turn me to Acts 19, if you would please. Acts 19 is where I'd like to direct your attention. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read this lengthy chapter of Scripture in just a moment, and I'd like you to have your Bibles open up to Acts 19, verse 1, because that's where we'll be in a little bit. Acts 19, verse 1. Nicholas Kristof is a columnist from the New York Times. I'm not sure if you've ever read anything he's written. I've quoted him a couple times. He really is no ally of Christianity. But in recent months, uh, Nicholas Kristof has written some articles very interesting articles about medical doctors serving in Africa. Uh, One of them is a Catholic missionary from Amsterdam, New York. His name is Tom Katina. He lives and serves in Sudan. And the other is a third-generation evangelical missionary. His name is Stephen Foster, and he lives in Angola with his family. He's lived in Angola his whole life, and he's a medical missionary there. And both of these men serve in dangerous areas with limited supplies and no pay to speak of. (coughs) Listen to how Nicholas Kristof started his article about Stephen Foster. This is how he starts. One sign of a landmark shift in public attitudes. A poll last year found that Americans approved more of gays and lesbians than of evangelical Christians. Today, among many urban Americans and Europeans, evangelical Christian is sometimes a synonym for rube. In liberal circles, evangelicals constitute one of the few groups that is safe to mock openly. Yet the liberal caricature of evangelicals is, one, is incomplete and unfair. I have little in common politically or theologically with evangelicals or, while I'm at it, conservative Roman Catholics, but I have been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places combating illiteracy and warlords, famine and disease, humbly struggling to to do the Lord's work as they see it, and it is offensive to see good people derided. It's not surprising to me at all, it shouldn't surprise any of us, that there are places around the world where followers of Jesus Christ are making the world a better place. After, when Paul wrote about the grace of God, he says, you have been saved by God's grace, and what have you been saved for? To do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. When we are at our best as followers of Jesus Christ, we turn the world upside down. We build families, we reduce poverty, we educate, we alleviate suffering, we teach, we heal, we clothe, we house. This is the passage that I read to you this, that I'm going to read in Acts 19 that is about that aspect of our existence, of how we turn the world upside down. 
It's also a passage, though, as you'll see, and it's actually the emphasis of the last half of the chapter, that when we turn the world upside down, there are going to be people who resist and oppose that work. Now, that's what I want to look at this morning as we read this passage, how Paul in Ephesus, through the gospel, turns the world upside down. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 19. Follow along as I do. It's a long passage of scripture, um, but uh, it's, uh, oh, it's wonderfully weird things happen in this verse. So this will be great. Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, a chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must also visit Rome. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now the opposition. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, about Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we have received a good income from this business. 
And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and they are pro-councils. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Now, this is the story of Paul's third missionary journey. Ephesus was his headquarters, and it was from there that he served in this third journey for about three years total. And in that time, he turned the world upside down. The second half of the passage tells us when the good news uh, about Jesus does what it's supposed to do, Christians, Christianity becomes a, a threat sometimes to an economy, to the prominence of a city, to a culture. Now, how does that happen? How does Christianity turn the world upside down? I have two answers to that question this morning I want to share with you. First one, Christianity turns the world upside down from the top down, from the top down. Now, let me clarify what, what that means. Christians don't turn the world upside down by seizing political power. We don't do it by taking control of the military and imposing Christianity on people. We don't do it by censorship or by rule of law. When I use the word temp, top down, that phrase, I'm trying to talk about God himself. This is a passage about the authority of Jesus Christ and that authority is expressed by sending the Apostle Paul to Ephesus. So how does Christianity turn the world upside down uh, from the top down when God sends Paul to Ephesus? 
I want to show you that to you here. There's three scenes in this passage, and the purpose of all of them is to highlight Paul's apostolic authority. We need to remember that because it's easy to get lost in some of the details here and some of the strangeness of this passage. The first episode, right at the beginning, involves Paul meeting these disciples, except, well, they use the word disciple, but he soon finds out they're not disciples in the traditional sense of the word because there's some things missing in their theology. Um, In fact, you can see that when he asks them those two questions. Verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit to to baptize, to be received like that. Second question, verse 3. Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. This is very strange. It's strange that 30 years or so after John the Baptist's ministry, there are still followers of his who live in the ancient world who didn't know about Jesus. There's 12 men here at listed. Um, and probably their families along with them, this pocket of people who had heard John the Baptist talk about the coming Messiah and who had believed and had had been baptized by John in anticipation of Jesus coming, but yet they had not heard about Jesus. So Paul tells them about Jesus, then he baptizes them, and then when he places his hands on them uh, to pray for them, the Holy Spirit comes on them, they speak in tongues and prophesy. Now, some people particularly our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, use this verse to argue that, they're, that this is a normal process, that you become a follower of Jesus, and then later you get baptized by the Holy Spirit, that it's a two-step process. They argue that. The problem with that understanding from this text is they weren't believers in Jesus at all. They were followers of John, but they didn't know the gospel. They weren't really they didn't, this is not the, them receiving the second step because they had never taken the first step. The other problem with that idea of this two stages is that in verse 2, Paul's expectation is that when you believe, you did receive the Holy Spirit. Like that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, the, the point, the emphasis of this story is not about the salvation of these men. It's about Paul. Look what happens when Paul prayed for them. The Holy Spirit came. Has that ever happened before? It did, as a matter of fact. Acts chapter 8, Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans, and the Holy Spirit came. Is Paul like Peter and John? Is he an apostle of that caliber? <gasps> yes, he is. Oh, oh, Or did this ever happen? Well, this kind of reminds us a little bit of Pentecost, doesn't it? In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down, they speak in tongues and prophesy, and what happens in Jerusalem? Thousands of people become followers of Jesus. Is that what's going to happen in Ephesus? Is Ephesus going to be like a new Jerusalem where thousands of people are going to become followers of Jesus? That would appear actually to be the case. This is the record of what appears to be Paul's greatest success in ministry. Verse 10 This went on for two years, his lecturing, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is a great season of ministry, and it starts with this miracle that Paul does. Now, the second episode here also highlights Paul's authority, and it's in verses 11 and 12, these miracles that he does. If you're puzzled by what is happening here, you should understand that Luke is a little bit puzzled too because he says these are extraordinary miracles. Um, So Paul 
as a good workman, of course, he's still making tents here, or, or leather goods is his job, and it's, it's the Mediterranean area. He gets hot and sweaty, so he has handkerchiefs that he wipes off his sweat and aprons that he wipes off his sweat, and he sets them down, and people are stealing them and taking them and laying them on sick people, and they're healed. Kind of nasty, right? Don't touch me that thing until you tell me where it was. Well, some guy sweated on it. It's all right. Um, so, uh, well, strange. It's very strange. The people in Ephesus, in addition to believing in Artemis, there's the, the great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was in Ephesus. They also, they worshipped Artemis, and they also believed in magic and sorcery. They had incantations, they had magical trinkets, and they're kind of treating Paul's sweaty rags like magical trinkets. And despite their warped ideas, God is still at work. In fact, that's, Luke emphasized that, doesn't it? God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Again, I ask, has this ever happened before? Do you remember there was a woman in the Gospels who touched the hem of Jesus' garment? All she had to do was touch his robes, and she was healed. Or what about when Peter walked through Jerusalem, and, and sick people were laid down, and even his shadow, his shadow when it touched them, healed them? Jesus, Peter, and Paul all three of these men in a class by themselves. Of course, if you ask Peter and Paul, they will say we're not in Jesus' class at all. But in the story, this is how it's developing. Now, the third episode here is even more strange, and it's meant to head off some of the magical thinking that's going on in Ephesus. There's some Jewish exorcists, and they see the power that Paul has, and they try to trap, tap into that power by using Jesus' name. But Jesus' name is not a magic word. It's not like saying abracadabra or shazam. Uh, when they try to use Jesus' name on one demon, he turns on them and beats them up and rips off their clothes. Matt Chandler says, if you're ever in a fight and you lose your pants, you have been defeated. This, this actually reminds me of, of another uh, uh, demon-possessed man. Do you remember Jesus met a demon-possessed man? And before he met Jesus, he lived in the tombs, and the text says he was naked and bleeding. And Jesus meets him, he casts out the demon, and to the surprise of everybody, they find this formerly demon-possessed man dressed and in his right mind and with his wounds bandaged. It's actually the exact opposite of what happens in this chapter, isn't it? These exorcists, what happens to them? They're the ones who end up naked and bleeding. Hmm. This passage really isn't about just about Paul and Paul's power. As Paul himself would have told anyone who listened, it's about Paul's message. It's about Paul's Lord. It's about Jesus himself. Thabiti Anyabwile tells a story. Um, I heard him several years ago, some of you were there when he told it, about a friend of his uh, named Bill who decided to go camping. Bill kind of went camping on a, on a dare. He went hiking into the mountains on a dare. He'd always been afraid of going into the forest or going into the mountains, but he went and bought all the gear he needed, and he went out to this remote place by himself. He found a nice clearing, and he sat down with all of his gear, and he built a nice fire, and he was sitting there one night enjoying it, and he thought to himself, you know, this isn't too bad. Here I am out in the wilderness, the forest. It's not nearly as scary as I thought. And then he felt the ground start to shake a little bit. And he heard this sound. 
this, this thumping, thumping on the ground. And he, and he heard birds flying and saw small rodents running out of the forest into the clearing and, and around. And coming out of the trees was this monstrous shadow. And as it, as it got closer, it revealed itself to a sight that paralyzed Bill with fear. It was a man. He was huge. He must have been at least six feet, ten inches tall, riding a grizzly bear. And he got off, he climbed off the grizzly bear and hit the grizzly bear in the face and the grizzly bear fell to the ground unconscious. And he turned around and Bill got his look at this massive man, 6'10", muscles bulging everywhere. He had around his neck what Bill thought at first was a necklace, but then he realized it was a rattlesnake hissing right there around his neck. This man walked over to Bill's fire and Bill had a, had a coffee pot, a metal coffee pot over the fire where there's some coffee boiling in it he reached down with his bare hands he took the metal cup uh, he metal kettle he drank the coffee almost all the way down when it was there was just a few inches left he walked back he threw it in the face of the bear it woke the bear awake and he climbed back on the bear and he turned to bill and he said i'd stick around and talk with you for a while but there's a bad man coming after me and i gotta get out of here look at what paul does Paul prays and the Holy Spirit comes. Paul's sweat rags are healing people. (laughs) Paul is known by these demons and feared by them. But if you ask Paul about his power and his authority, he will tell you, oh, there is another man. Let me tell you about him. It's it's about Jesus that he spoke to the disciples of John. Wasn't it back in in, in verse 4? He tells them about the Lord Jesus. It's about Jesus that he's talking every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. What happens here is not based on superstitious magic. It's based on Paul's real connection with Jesus. God is working from the top down by sending his apostles to herald the message about his son. And he established their credibility with these miracles. They're his messengers. This is important to notice because we are a church that is founded on the apostles. The foundation of the church is the apostles. We read Paul's letters. We proclaim Paul's message. We worship Paul's Lord. If anyone came to Paul and asked and said to him, wow, you're amazing, he would have said to them, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's the son of the most high, Jesus is. He's the son of our creator. He's the one to whom we owe everything and the one to whom we are accountable. He's the one who's come in the flesh. And by his coming, he has revealed to us what God is like. He came because his father asked him to in obedience to his father. In fact, his obedience took him all the way to the cross because it was his father's plan for the sake of love that his son would die as our substitute on the cross. This most high God against whom we live in rebellion and we deserve his righteous eternal wrath provided for us a substitute who would die in our place. And because of his son, you can be forgiven and reconciled to God by faith, by turning to him and trusting him. And that's what Paul said. All these miracles that Paul does are just a small reflection of the magnificence and grandeur of the God he preaches. 
We're in the church built by his apostle. We read his letters. We trumpet his message about the Lord Jesus. How did God turn the world upside down by sending men and women to speak on his behalf? Do you know what that will take? Courage. When the riot happens towards the end of the passage, uh, verse 30, Paul, they're they're in the theater. The theater in Ephesus holds about 25,000 people. And they're in the theater, and Paul wants to go in and speak to them, which is a whole unique set of crazy, right? This is courageous crazy. He wants to go. Where did Paul get that? Paul knew he was speaking for God. Chuck Swindoll said, when you're intimidated by who's sitting in the audience, we should remember the King of Kings is also here, and it's his message that we bring. There's no way to escape this call to courage that's in this passage. If you're concerned about the spiritual condition of your children or the spiritual condition of your neighbors or your parents, the call for you is to speak because the Lord Jesus himself sends us. From the top down, God sends his messengers to testify about the Lord Jesus. It's how Christianity turns the world upside down. Now, second, how does Christianity turn the world upside down? From the bottom up, from the bottom up, by changing the lives of those who believe, by changing the lives of those who believe. Verse 10 is one of the reports of Paul's ministry. We read that. Verse 17 is another, look at another summary here. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor Verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. What's happening here is that followers of Jesus who have trusted in him see this reminder of the Lord Jesus' great power and they they have been practicing, while they've been believing in Jesus, they have been practicing superstitious magic and sorcery. They confess their double-mindedness and they bring... Uh, their magic books, and they have uh, uh, a great conflagration. They set them on fire. There is a conflict between allegiance to Jesus and superstition. There is a conflict between the authority of the Lord Christ and those who believe in magical arts. The, la- the last time Fred and Joanna were here uh, visiting with us, one night Kathy was at work and she had left some instructions for what we were supposed to do for dinner. Joanna was he- helping me and, and we read the instructions and, and we, we were ready to put something in the oven and, and I said, do you think this is right? She said, I'm not sure if it's right or not. I said, well, we'll put it in and keep our fingers crossed. And she looked at me with this horrid look on her face. She, oh, no, she said. I said, it's just an expression. I learned that day apparently in France, it's not just an expression. It's magic. It's superstitious magic, which is incompatible with the Lord Christ. They burn these books, books with a value of 50,000 drachmas, which is about all that Greece has in the bank right now. A drachma... Uh, current, con- it's, it's difficult to do currency uh, evaluations or currents. It's difficult. But a drach- the 50,000 drachma, if you worked at your job for 137 years and collected your salary, it would be about the equivalent of 50,000 drachmas in the Bible. This is a lot of money. 
there was life change. It was not imposed on them from uh, people. It was not imposed by the Apostle Paul. This was life change from the bottom up. They said, there's this inconsistency in my life and I have to get rid of it. Verse 20, look what it says after this. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. How do Christians turn the world upside down? By changed lives. There are examples of this throughout time that have taken place, many of them. Many of the most obvious changes we're actually not as familiar with because they happened in the first few hundred years of the church. Right now, uh, the eyes of Americans are on, again, on the issue of justice for the unborn because of the videos about Planned Parenthood. Do you know that, that Christianity, Christians were one of the first people to oppose abortion, to say abortion is wrong? Tim Keller's written about this. Uh, there is a, a line in one of the oldest church documents, almost as old as the New Testament itself, where it speaks about abortion and how awful it is. They had uh, medicinally, herbally induced abortions then. Uh, in Roman culture, parents had the legal right to, to kill any children that they didn't want. If you had a baby and you didn't want the baby, you could throw the baby in a field. You could leave the baby in the forest. It didn't matter. Nobody would, would condemn you for committing that murder. Baby girls were the most common victims. In fact, some historians have said that at the time of Christ in the Roman Empire, there were 140 males for every 100 girls. Those girls had been thrown out. Christians, though, took those abandoned babies in. They cared for them. And by their compassion and care, they turned the world upside down. Christianity changed the world, the condition in the world for women, for slaves, for children. They changed education. They changed health care. Do you know why there's cemeteries around churches, how that became associated with churches? Well, in the ancient world... Uh, uh, Romans and Greeks in particular didn't care about the bodies, uh, especially of the poor that had died, and they were left everywhere. Christians, though, went and found those bodies, those dead bodies, and they bought the land and they buried them. They, they cared for them. We're in the midst of a moral revolution in our country. It's not a surprise to anyone. And we're also seeing the collapse of cultural Christianity. That is the collapse of, of people who self-identify as Christians because it's expected or advantageous. Uh, cultural Christians are people who go to church, but they don't really have any personal faith. They go to church because that's what good people do, but the faith is not really theirs. And cultural Christianity is collapsing which means that our influence in the world is not going to come from the fact that Christianity is popular or given lip service, but our influence in the world is going to come from the bottom up. How will we magnify God's good design for marriage? We're going to do it by having marriages between a man and a woman that are beautifully balanced and life-producing and happy. How are we going to uh, continue to speak out against the neglect and murder of the unborn? How are we going to do that? By opening our homes to children that nobody wants. Your home to children that nobody wants. How are we going to uh, change the world? By bringing out of your life the inconsistencies between the lordship of Jesus and these practices that are hidden in the dark recesses of your soul. 
This past week, Salon Magazine, it's an online journal, ran an, an opinion piece by Jeffrey Taylor. And in the opinion piece, Jeffrey Taylor was, was um, writing about um, uh, the belief in God and how it affects society. And he said that many different pieces of evidence he brought in. He said that it's clear that a passionate belief in God is dangerous to society. In fact, he, he jokingly, only jokingly, slightly suggests that passionate belief in God should be listed as a mental illness. Uh, we're not surprised by this. Are we? We're not surprised by this because there have been many followers of Jesus Christ who have done shameful things. We're not surprised. We're also, though, not surprised by it because this has always been the way people have responded to Christianity that changes the world. We expect that. We expect there to be opposition when the world is turned upside down. But it doesn't stop us. It doesn't stop us because we live life from the inside out. And as Jesus told us, our eyes are always on the next horizon, just like Paul. Where am I going to go next? I'm going to go to Rome next. And then when I get to Rome, I'm going to go to Spain next. We are people who have our eyes on the horizon as we root out the inconsistencies in our life. We do that until Jesus' name is known to the ends of the earth. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great mercies to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it thrills us to read about Paul's power. This man, he's on our side. We read his letters. He, he enunciates for us clearly what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does it as your humble servant. Um, Help us, Father, to recognize this and thus walk in courage. Would you help us to be prepared for the inevitable opposition that will come? And I pray that you would give us, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, that you would give us eyes to see forgotten people and by our love for them, we'll change the world, turn the world upside down, as we speak about Jesus and, and welcome those who have been forgotten. How we thank you for your great grace that comes to us uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.